And now, a highlight from Animal Radio on iHeartRadio. Judy, just a couple of days ago, you got your dog vaccinated. I uh, got it was her a, rabies. It was her rabies? Yes. She She's always just a little lethargic after that. She did pretty well this time. I, I think... Uh, before we did like multiple vaccinations, and this time we just did the rabies. She's, do you ever worry about that? Yes, I do. I really don't like to, but you know, according to the laws around here, I have to do that to keep her her dog license. Sure, sure. Well, you know, it's the same in the human world. In the human world, uh, we always we don't get the rabies. I haven't had my. I'm not up to date <laughs> with my rabies. But we were always worried about vaccinations. Kids have to be vaccinated to start school. And are they good or are they troublemakers? Yeah. Yeah. So we have on the phone with us, Dr. Jean Dodd. She's the founder of Hemopet, an animal blood bank, and she also is considered one of the foremost veterinary experts on vaccines. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so let's get down to brass and taxes. What vaccinations do we really, 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 really need? <laughs> the same question, as you pointed out, applies to ourselves as well as to the companion animals, wildlife, and livestock that we share our world with. Um, as far as dogs and cats are concerned, it's very important that the kitten and the puppy receive the appropriate vaccination series when they're young. Okay. So the first point about that is not to give them too young because their immune system's not ready to get that onslaught. Remember, vaccines are not just the vaccine thing you're protecting against, but they also have what we call excipients, fetal calf serum, tissue culture remnants, et cetera, et cetera. So you're giving basically a mixture of materials when you vaccinate. So don't want to give them too young and you don't want to give them when maternal immunity from the mother's colostrum milk, you know, the first milk when they're born, Mm -hmm. um, because that's going to neutralize the vaccine. And so the person thinks their animal's been protected when it may not have been properly vaccinated at all. Okay. So appropriately spaced vaccines when they're puppies and kittens. Then a year later, you do a tighter you measure the serum level of antibody in the blood that's one option and we have to ask our vet to do that because i don't remember our vet ever actually offering that to us well that's changed um in the last 10 years we are required by the policies in north america and most of the world the world small animal veterinary association by informed consent to ask the client if they would like to have a booster a deferral or a titer please explain what a titer is Okay, a titer is a measurement of the amount of antibody in the blood of the individual, whether it's a human or an animal. And if the antibody level in the blood is sufficient to cause protection against the disease, that animal or person does not need to have a booster. Mm. Rabies vaccines are the only exception. And for dogs Ah. and cats throughout North America and most of the world, vaccines for rabies are required. Titers are not acceptable in any country of the world yet, except for export. So you can't do titers, but you have to have by law two rabies vaccines given within the first 12 months of each other. And the first one has to be done before 24 weeks, six months of age. There's a second issue. All but two of the currently licensed canine rabies vaccines contain thimerosal, which is mercury. We do not want to put mercury into the body, certainly not of young animals, and certainly never, okay? Remember, we've taken it out of fillings in our teeth. We don't want mercury in there. So you have to be sure that the veterinary clinic that is giving the rabies vaccine carries one of the two commercial vaccines that are called thimerosal, TF4, 
free, thiamarosol free, TF. And there are only two. So let me make sure I have this straight here. Uh, we want to give ahead. them their distemper and their parvo, not mm-hmm. too early, not too late, so about nine or ten weeks of age is what you're saying? Correct. And then uh, we have to give them the rabies. That's usually by law, and we should wait till they're at least 20 weeks old for that. That's also correct. Now, just remember, if you're in the face of a parvovirus epidemic, Uh and that happens every spring and fall and summertime, you can give a single parvo only to a puppy if you're not sure about the immunity at six weeks. We're going to take a quick break. Dr. Debbie, did you have questions? Well, you know, I um, you know, I think talking about rabies, distemper, and parvo, and feline panleukopenia is kind of all clear. But what about you know, when we're talking about you know more of the bacterins, you know, the leptospirosis, um, uh, you know, Lyme disease? Right. Do you want to take a break, or do you want me to answer that now? Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. <laughs> I like <that>. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to giving our animals vaccinations, all of us or at least most people that I know, are a little bit trepidatious about it. They don't know if it's something good, if they have to do it, or if it could cause problems down the line. And that's why we have Dr. Jean Dodds, the founder of Hemopet, which is an animal blood bank, and she's also one of the foremost veterinary experts on vaccinosis and vaccines. Uh, Dr. Debbie, just before the break, you had a question. Go ahead. Um, well, we're talking. She was talking about titers for certain diseases um, when we administer a modified live vaccine. For other vaccines that are more bacterial in nature, the duration of protection is much shorter. Um, and uh, most of those, if I'm correct, it's once a year on the annual vaccination, and you can't do titers on those. So, how how do you advise for those types of diseases in at-risk areas? Okay, well, first of all, the national organizations in our profession have what they call core vaccines, and then they have non-core, which are optional vaccines, and many of those depend, as you know, Debbie, on where you live. So, for example, Lyme disease is more common in certain parts of the East Coast and in some parts of the Northwest. So in areas where these diseases are not important, we don't recommend vaccinating for them because it's not, it's not critical. Um, you can do all kinds of testing to see whether the animals have been exposed to Lyme disease, for example, or whether the titers are good. When you come to leptospirosis, it's a zoonotic disease, which means that people and other mammals can catch it. So therefore, it's a reportable disease. The problem is leptospirosis is not a common clinical entity, except in certain parts around, say, the Great Lakes, some areas of the Northeast, some areas of the Northwest. We don't have it, for example, in Southern California. The problem with leptospirosis is there are 200 serovar strains, of which we only test antibody levels in seven, typically, the seven important ones. But the current vaccines for the dog only have four strains of lepto in there. So if the strains of leptospirosis that have been reported by the public health agencies in your region are a strain that's not in the vaccine, giving the vaccine won't help at all. There's not a cross-protection on that? Very little cross-protection from leptospira autumnalis and leptospira bratislava, basically none. Um, not, not enough to give you any comfort. And I got an email just this morning, Debbie, from a client whose veterinarian told them they're in Florida, South Florida, that they had to vaccinate for leptospirosis because if their puppy went out and licked a puddle, it could die of this fatal disease. Now, you know, hysteria doesn't make any sense. The public doesn't understand that. And nor should we as veterinarians actually frighten people. We need to talk to them about the, the um, exposure risk in the area they live in. Now, 
What about hepatitis? And that's a very important issue because hepatitis, uh, that's adenovirus 1, but we have no vaccines for that anymore because they produce blue eyes. So what we have is adenovirus 2, which is part of the kennel cough complex. And adenovirus 2 vaccines are used to cross-protect against infectious canine hepatitis. But we, and it's in the core. However, we've had no clinical cases for 15 years in North America. One individual case only. No cases. So why are we vaccinating something that can cause significant adverse reactions when we don't have the disease? But if you give Bordetella vaccines, not that I'm recommending them, by the oral preferred over the intranasal route, that will stimulate interferon, a natural immunity in the individual that's vaccinated, the puppy. So oral Bordetella stimulates interferon in the puppy, and that protects against adenovirus 2 and the other upper respiratory viruses like parainfluenza, like even influenza. And so you end up getting cross-protection against hepatitis from the core by giving oral Bordetella. What about influenza? It's ubiquitous everywhere in the country. All crowded areas have this highly um, contagious uh, two viruses, strains uh, N2 and N8. Why are we vaccinating for it? Do we vaccinate ourselves every time we have the cold or a flu? No, only certain populations at specific risk are vaccinated. And I feel the same way about that today for the dog. You talk about two different kinds of uh, vaccines, one that has the, the long pokey thing that I just always turn my head when they do that. And then you have the nasal one. I guess it's squirted up their nose like a spray. Is one more effective or safer than the other? No, no. We're just talking about intranasal. I don't okay. recommend it. I okay. recommend the oral one. Let me tell you the problem with intranasal. Okay. When you spray it up the nose, it puts vaccines stuff all around the face of the individual and any other animal or person standing nearby. Oh, Oh, okay. Think about the eyes. Think about blinking. Think about the exposure to that. If you give it orally, it's much less likely to spray around the area and will just immunize that individual. And so oral vaccines that are available are the way to go if you believe they're important clinically um, to protect an animal against the kennel cough complex, for example. Mm. I know there's all kinds of things that can happen with vaccines. Uh, we had a cat after his vaccine had a bump where the vaccine was. I understand there's such thing as vaccine-induced sarcomas. What else can happen with a vaccine? Well, the vaccine sarcoma is a tumor at the injection site, and yes, it can occur in the cat, first recognized in the cat. It also occurs in the dog, and believe it or not, when the first paper showing the same thing occurred in the dog, I mean, why not? It should, right? Um, It couldn't even be published in North America. They had to publish it um, in Europe because nobody in North America wanted to deal with this potential risk for producing a tumor at the injection site. But the injection site can also have a granuloma, so that's a reaction almost to the irritation of having some of the materials in the what I call toxic tissue culture soup put into a particular part of the body. Dr. Dodds, do you have a website if people want to learn more? Yes, www.hemopet.org and www.rabieschallengefund.org. And, of course, we'll put links to everything you've heard on today's show over at animalradio.pet. Dr. Dodds, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. My pleasure. You're listening to Animal Radio. Visit us at animalradio.com or download the Animal Radio app for iPhone and Android.